So, Mark, um, war crimes, Afghanistan, uh, secret soldiers. Is this investigative journalism at its toughest? Yeah, look, uh, and hello, everyone. Um, yeah, I, I've um, done a bit over the years, but this was a real challenging story because it involved not just defence, as we, a lot of people in this room know, is a fairly secretive institution in itself, but it dealt with the most elite forces within defence, um, and in particular the SAS, and this is a culture of total secrecy and machismo and courage and the Anzac legend, and uh, they protect that fiercely. Um, and so it's a very difficult nut to crack, and um, I was, you know, like most journalists, I got a bit of luck at the start. Um, and thankfully that luck led to a whistleblower and a, an amazing email. It's not often that you get that email in your, your uh, inbox spells things out and you, it's that holy shit moment that this guy must know what he's talking about. Mostly it's uh, abuse, um, <laughs> career advice. <laughs> and so, yeah, I got a bit of luck, but it was one of those situations, Chris, as you know, as Nick McKenzie knows, Dan Oakes, all of the uh, journalists who've worked in this space that you could smell something, but it was a matter of trying to get to the bottom of it. and. Um, we were very lucky that a series of events unfolded uh, that got us inside. And, um, you know, a whistleblower of the um, ilk of Braden Chapman, who appeared in the Four Corners, um, was so important. It, obviously, whistleblowers are, you know, the core of what we do in investigative journalism. And um, to be able to take that anonymous email and then to work out who it was, and then for him to agree to, for me to actually just sit and have a cup of coffee with him, and then for me to plant that seed that I think, you know, if you come on camera, this could change the game. It was a bloody long shot, but we, we managed um, through patience, weeks and weeks and weeks, and back and forth to, to get there. And I think one of the best things we can do in journalism is challenge the public, ch challenge public attitudes. And you know there's immense sympathy for the notion that the sacred Anzac can do no wrong. Did, did you, was, was that difficult? Yeah, it was. I think this is a story um, where the hero thing's been flipped on its head, that certain people have been held up as the epitome of, you know, the warrior soldier and the Anzac legend, when it was really the quiet people who were drawn in to what was some terrible events, so either forced to witness them, participate in them, uh, you know, I think they proved to be the heroes. In journalism, again, we think whistleblowers are heroes, and I, I think Braden Chapman, he, uh, he put a lot on the line because, uh, you know, he's, he, as he said in the story, he is informing on people who are trained better than anyone in this country to kill. Mm. So this isn't just, you know, oh, geez, will I lose my house? Will the AFP kick my door in? Um, that was a lot for him to put uh, on the line. You and know? you feel protective of these people too. Yeah, like, uh, as we know, I, I talk to Braden every couple of days. Um, I spoke to him yesterday uh, because they gave, they give you a lot of trust. They give you a lot of themselves and they put a lot on the line. And, and I think we have a duty of care in a lot of ways um, to just see how they're going. And, you know, he told me a story that um, he was uh, walking through a particular shopping centre one day and after the Four Corners went to air and one of the soldiers that he accused of committing a crime walked towards him. Okay. 
And he was on the phone, mm. this guy. And he looked at Braden, and Braden looked back, and there was that flicker of recognition. And, you know, th that was a moment. And he rang me, and he said, I've just seen such and such. And I went, oh, you're right. Mm. So, yeah. they, they, you know, <laughs> small place, this country. No. Well, Nick and I, uh, Nick McKenzie and myself, have ran a story this week about uh, whistleblowers being potentially punished. For, uh, it's, it's shocking, isn't it, to think that after all this, you know, that the, 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 they get punished. I mean, the, the deterrent effect is obvious. Well, I, I had someone tell me that when that Four Corners went to air, that night the phones went nuts, both in Perth and in Canberra. And that one of the first reactions of the Defence Department was not, Jesus, look at that, what, look what happened in that field. It was, who the hell leaked that footage? Yeah. Where did they get the footage? Yeah. Um, and then there was this, you know, move to try and root out the leaker. And thankfully, you know, um, saner, wiser, calmer heads prevailed. And they were told to calm down. It's too late, guys. Um, the cat is out of the bag. Um, but yes, and, and um, but having said that, you know, uh, I talked to Braden, as I said, and, and he felt quite empowered by it. And, it. and his wife rang me up and she said that I actually learnt something about my husband that night that he never told me. And, you know, so the power of journalism, the power of telling the story, and, and of course I'm a selfish journalist, I want him to go on camera. I want him to show his face, tell us who he is, what he did, because that makes a better story. But I firmly believed, um, you know, as did my uh, investigations editor, Joe Pacini, um, that there's more power for him and there's more protection for him. And, and he thought, now's the time to do it. I've been sitting on this stuff for eight years. Yeah, well, I've met a lot of them myself and I often think mm. the ones that demonstrated the moral courage are actually a lot more impressive than, you know, physical acts of bravery. Yes. Inside the tent or outside the tent? This is interesting with this story because I think the presumption often is that we don't want to be led around by the nose by defence officials. Uh, we want to run our own race. But mm. reporting in Afghanistan uh, beyond the perimeter of the ADF is obviously clearly risky. Beyond that, you know, you'd have to say, well, the Taliban are going to tell you the truth any more than defence media would. Mm. Um, what, do you th what do you think about that? About Is it better to work inside the tent or outside the tent? Uh, I think outside the tent, but I think you've got to straddle it occasionally. Um, and uh, as you would know, there are good people in defence. Um, but having said that, I, I think we've got a big problem in this country with certain institutions. And I, I think this culture of secrecy inside defence is terrible. I think what we saw in Afghanistan, the perpetuation of this, these killings, the cover-ups, was a direct result of you know, this institution that stood over the top of it. And these guys got away with it for so long because of that institution. Now, having said that, you know, I, I found defence quite predictable. Every time I put in a series of questions with dates and village names and I'd get back a, an email saying we can't comment because the Inspector General of Defence is investigating. Now you go to them and they say we can't comment because the Office of the Special Investigator is uh, investigating. Then it'll be a, you know, I can't comment, there's a court case. So they hide, they hide. But to try and penetrate that, um, it's very difficult. You know, I'd like to know how what you think because you know you and Nick in particular have had to straddle both at times, but also you've you've got to be outside the tent a lot of the time. Well, the, the essential information came from soldiers within the SAS, mm. and 
And that happened because we got to know them. So it was a good lesson for all of us, I think, because, say, doing stories on the Queensland Police, there's no way you'd work inside the tent. Yep. But, but uh, how did we get to close enough to these people for them to ultimately come to us and trust, so, mm. trust us? So I, I think it's definitely a, a matter of judgment. You've got to apply judgment wherever you sit. Mm. Yeah, I think so. And again, I, I, was just, I just had a bit of luck and I had one come to me. And then what, what happens with your reporting? Um, I think we ended up doing 17 separate stories. The Four Corners was obviously the, the, the big one, but... And over those 17 separate stories about war crimes, cover-ups, whatever, we had more people come out of the woodwork. Um, and then they'd say, well, I've got a mate who might talk to you. And it, it was about your reporting. And you know how hard it is, but you've, if you nail it, you get it right, you show patience and you show that you're not about, you're not about the big hit. It's, it's the story. You mm. want to impart the story, then they trust you. If um, they see you being fair... They can mm. change their attitude. And, they yep. can, and they'll come forward too when they see that others are, are yep. coming forward. Um, journalism's always been institutionally competitive. You know, we do, our colleagues help us out sometimes, but they fight with us like buggery too. Mm. Uh, and uh, do you think that's been healthy, the competition? There's been a lot over the reporting of Afghanistan war crimes. Yeah, it's, uh, well, it's, it's one of those stories that's... Um, you, 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 you're pretty fierce about the, the patch you occupy. Um, I think there has been healthy competition. Obviously, you know, you've helped me out. Nick's helped me out um, on a couple of things. And there's, you know, I hope I've helped you a bit. You have, yeah. Yeah. But then there's that. The thing that pisses me off about this, this story is that I'll give you an example. I spent two months working on a particular story involving, you know, a US uh, helicopter crewman. And it was a story he told me. He, he contacted me. He was an interesting guy. And he said, you know, we were ferrying the Australian commandos around and, you know, th they were crazy brave, but they crossed lines. And we always, the crew, my crew, we'd talk about it. And he told the story that they were out in an operation. They dropped their commandos. Then it was time to pick them up. And, you know, they radio in and said, you know, we've got six, you know, our guys and six prisoners and, you know, the, the chopper pilot, through the, he heard it through the communication, said, well, we've only got room for five. And then, yep, we're good, we've got five. Now, I checked that story with other sources that I couldn't, I couldn't really go into. And I spent two months checking out, going back to this guy, getting more detail, more detail, speaking to other people who were there. We put it out. We went to defence, um, you know, and then, you know, a while later, you know, a newspaper says, it comes out with the headline, you know, ABC's pop fiction. You know, there's this idea that we, yeah, we make shit up and we don't. And this same paper, two weeks later, I, I wrote it down, you know, has front page heroes in the frame, Australian diggers accused of brutal war crimes. And I, I found it a bit disappointing that, you know, yeah, come after me. If I've made a mistake or I've... Um, I've been loose with my journalism. Come after me. I, I, I welcome it. But this journalist didn't even call me, didn't ask to speak to the people I've spoken to, and I, I just found it annoying that in one day someone can pull down reporting or, or try to pull it down that takes two months. Um, and so I found that there was this competition um, that was healthy and collegiate within our 
organisation, and there was others that I found yeah, a bit cheap at times. Well, you, you got savaged by Alan Jones, didn't you? On I Monday had, night, yes. Have you recovered? That hurt. Have you recovered? I've recovered. <laughs> the good thing about being savaged by Alan is that <laughs> you, you don't find out about it until weeks later. <laughs> um, but... Uh, there have been a lot of costs, haven't there? You know, like uh, yeah. poor old Dan, you know, raided, but it, this story's knocked him about. Uh, um, the litigation, I mean, Nick McKenzie and yeah. I spend all our time with lawyers now. And uh, um, death threats, which, for what it's worth, I've always found to be the least of our worries. Yeah, yeah. Um, but do you think that... The, that uh, that, the, that there are significant costs in this kind of work that yeah. go beyond what's Well, I, you know, Dan Oakes works in uh, the investigations unit that I'm part of, and, you know, um, to have that threat of uh, criminal charges hanging over your head for so long, um, it would weigh heavily on every, anyone in this room. And, and, you know, I think the AFP's handling of it was fairly appalling. Um, you and Nick, you know, defamation is that other one. And as you know, through Moonlight State and other things, it, it can drag on for years and years and years. And, you know, we need strong media institutions because of those threats to back us and to say, no, we'll fight in the courts for you. And that costs sometimes millions of dollars. Um, the threats, yeah, look, you know, um, I, you know, we all, we've, we've discussed this. We, you know, we get threats all the time when you do this sort of stuff. But it's, it's mainly from these, you know, self-confessed Aussie patriot mouth breathers who, you know, seriously, the soldiers I talk to from the SAS, just, they're, they're good people. These are the guys who want this rubbish um, rooted out. Like one guy said to me, you know, they take, it, it costs $2 million roughly to train each and every one of us and we should know when not to pull the trigger. That's what makes us better soldiers. Um, so it's ironic that, you know, there are all these um, Aussie patriots out there who are basically endorsing war crimes. I think that was one of the... That this has been one of the things that has really drained me the most is the, some of the public reaction. Yeah. It's, it's really... It's pretty... Bloody ordinary. It feels sometimes to me like it's like it's okay if Germans commit war crimes, you know. I mean, you know, we can get angry about that. We can get angry about the Japanese committing war crimes, but not if Australians do it. Yeah, this is and this is very historic because you know we have the prospect in the next decade or so of Australian soldiers sitting in the dock, being being accused and uh, prosecuted for war crimes in a land far, far away from years and years ago, but they're the best of the best. And, you know, uh, I think, to me, what is really sad is the conditions that created that, and that's getting back to the institutions. Mm. It, funnily enough, it restored my faith to some degree in the quality of a lot of the soldiers because we've spoken to so many of the whistleblowers who showed that moral courage. As one of them said to me on, a, that on one occasion, you know, we're not Genghis Khan's marauders. I really believe in uh, the defence force defending the innocent. And another one was talking about an, an incident that, you know, we got embroiled with about an argument about, you know, whether or not to kill a 
15-year-old unarmed kid, and he, he said, well, I didn't join the SAS to shoot an unarmed teenager in the back. Yeah, I, I, and that's the thing that's impressed me, is that in journalism, again, we need those whistleblowers, and the quality of these, some of these men is, is amazing. And, and the, the sad thing about the story is we can't always tell that side of the story. Yes, there's the Braden Chapmans and a few others, but a lot of these guys, the condition of them helping is their anonymity. But they are, they are out there, aren't they? You know, these guys who um, are very impressive. And I think a lot of them have been badly let down by their leadership. I know the Brereton inquiry into the war crimes didn't really nail that leadership issue, but I think it's an institutional problem. Again, I've mentioned that. The tradecraft, when you're dealing with classified information, these soldiers, it's, it's, we're not even allowed to identify them. You know, there's all sorts of rules that you can break. What would your advice be to, um, to other journalists on this beat as terms of, mm. you know, protecting y y your own evidence? Yeah, um, it's a good question because as we see, saw with the a AFP raids, you know, they're very alert to what we have as journalists and what we, um, we use and who we talk to. Um, and so, you know, for this, uh, for, especially for the Four Corners story, um, it was tough because we had to handle a lot of information. Um, we had the vision, which was really important. And how do you protect that? Um, so, you know, we're in an evolving industry here in terms of uh, using certain um, encrypted devices, software, um, you know, obviously classified information comes across your desk potentially occasionally. I couldn't comment about whether it did on this, this occasion or not. But the point is, you know, you have to be very careful. And I think the most important thing about that tradecraft is protecting your sources. And that would be to... I don't give a shit if the uh, AFP kick in my door. Good, have, good luck, you know, have a rifle through my underwear drawer. That'd be, be interesting. <laughs> anyway... Um, what I'm concerned about is whether I'll give someone away who's helped me. And, and that, you know, it makes things hard. You know, before we go to air with stories, you know, well, I give too much away, but things have to be put to bed and away and dealt with. Um, and that, what saddens me is that it's not just this Afghanistan story that this happens. And, you know, Nick could know, you know... Nearly every story he does, I'm sure, your, your information protection, your source protection, uh, your handling of classified or sensitive uh, documents, whatever, it's paramount. It's really important. You can never get sloppy with that stuff. You know, I, how do you deal with it? You know, it's... it's yeah, well, I've never written a name in a notebook. Still don't do it. Um, and, uh, you know, everything goes in on post-its and then mm. gets stripped out later. Lots of signal phone calls, lots mm. of proton mail, all that sort of stuff. But um, what about managing classified information? I mean, we're not allowed to admit that we ever get it, but there's very few people in this room who haven't got it. And in many respects, it's what we see as our core business. Uh, but it's, it happens to be against the law. Yeah. So I, how, I think, how do you do that? I think what's important with that information is not to wave it about, especially in front of a camera, but... The point about it is to use it to either verify or to kick something off. Um, there was something in the four corners that I can't, you know, can't discuss it, but we had to be very careful how something was framed. It was framed correctly and accurately, but if we'd said it a different way, then I'm sure it may have triggered something. And, and that's, 
That's the thing. I think as journalists in this 21st century of, you know, liberal Western democracy, I think the power of the state, um, the secrecy of institutions, um, and the fear of journalists and what they can do to those institutions and powers is become so heightened that um, it's making our job increasingly difficult and fraught. And again, it is making it getting or obtaining and getting sources to trust you even harder. And you've got to feel for those people. Um, I really worry about where we're headed, but you know that makes our job even more important and crucial um, into the future. So you, you might access the, inf the material. You don't put your fingerprints on it if you can help it. Mm. You, you copy what you can, you keep it in a, a location somewhere other than your own premises. Uh, but most important, you don't say you've got it because that's red rag to a bull. They're going to yeah. have to come after you. Yeah, and, and I was warned by someone quite senior about that. And I said, but, you know, you know, like after the AFP raids, you know, do they really got a stomach for this? He said, yes, they do. He said, because if they let you get away with having that classified document or whatever it may be, and you, you, you know, going, you know, tonight the ABC reveals this, then their attitude is, well, that opens the doors for everyone else to try and do that. They will clamp down on it every time. And so, yeah, it... Um, Again, it makes things difficult, um, but it means that we've got to try harder and be smarter. When I started too many years ago, you know, when your work generated a Royal Commission, you were terrified because you figured if anybody called for a Royal Commission, it was because they'd already determined the outcome, you know, that, that it would be a soft trawl and, you know, your witnesses would get into even more trouble. Um, it just seems like a very different environment now where you look at these commissions of inquiry into church abuse, etc., and uh, the banking uh, commission, the Crown Casino one recently, um, and the IGADF, you know, the interest in war crimes. Uh, do you think it's changed? Do you think that investigative journalists have actually got significant allies in the legal community who are just as committed to dealing with difficult Mm. Uh, public policy. I, I think so. I, I think there are good people out there in the non-journalistic fields, whether it's law or whatever, who really do want to get to the bottom of things. And, um, you know, one of the criticisms of the Brereton report was, um, oh, my God, this has taken four years, four and a half years. And, uh, you know, I looked at it as a journalist, from a journalist's point of view, you know, when they were given that assignment to look into war crimes, it was to investigate allegations, rumours of war crimes. Rumors, yeah. They had no specific um, allegations. They had no detail. They had like a page with investigate rumours of war crimes um, and a few bits of scuttlebutt and rumour and, oh, you know, I heard this. Um, the task was actually immense. And, you know, I think um, having read the redacted version, which, we, which is publicly available, I think it's been a pretty amazing job, to be honest, yeah. um, to get from... Obviously, they have a few more powers than we do as journalists. But to get from investigate rumours of war crimes to, I think, what ended up to be an eight-volume report, which we can't all see, mm. it's quite incredible. And that was as, as hard as, as it gets. And I actually think that sometimes when some of these horrible things occurred, 
the soldiers thought the last thing that would ever happen was the ABC or some lawyer would be going back to that remote village in Wurzgan yeah. to ask people questions. That was an important part of the story too, and I know you and Nick have done it and other journalists, is to get... Like, I can't go knocking on doors in rural Aruzgan because um, I might not end up with a head. Um, but we had an amazing team of journalists that we used down there who put, uh, put it on the line. You know, their safety was the, our priority, but they were dogged. Like, I remember they went into a village one day and the Taliban basically bailed them up, um, interrogated them um, and sent them packing, thankfully. And I, I said to the journalist, I said, well, look, let's just leave that. No, no, we'll go back in two weeks, it'll be fine, they'll calm down. Mm -hmm. And he went back and he found what we wanted to find. Um, and he found, you know, the, vic family's victim, uh, the victim's family. And what, what amazed me about a lot of these Afghan stories is how lucid, clear and precise they were. Which was amazing consider considering how the Australian military consistently labelled them as money seekers or mm. liars mm. or Taliban stooges. In the end, the Raritan report didn't just vindicate our reporting, it vindicated their version of what they saw. And it certainly made me realise why they hated us so much. Mm. I mean, imagine, you know, these super soldiers coming into your house in the dead of night, blowing the walls in, knocking the doors down. Camouflage. You know, terrifying. Yeah. The, the children. Mm. Um, there's, um, I think there's terrific uh, material in your film that demonstrates the power of the camera. You know, mm. you, you can see how the George Floyd Black Lives Matter vision, you know, changed the world. You can, you can see how the Dondale vision from a couple of years back was, was so powerful, unanswerable. And, of course, I think that's true of the killing field vision. Tell me about you coming across that and what, whether you think that's made a big difference. I think it has. You know, I know you and Nick, again, had been reporting consistently for several years about allegations of crime, war crimes. You've had details. But the power, as you know, uh, you were at Four Corners for years, you know, the power of that picture is just insane. You know, like, I remember getting hold of that um, cash of footage and I, I went through it frame by frame over the course of, I don't know, a week, a bit over a week. And I remember that, that footage was towards the end of my little trawling exercise and um, it was a Friday night at about 6pm and I'm in the office and I had it on a separate laptop and I remember it's the same old footage, they're on the Black Hawk, they jump off, they're running through a field, guy over there. And we all know what happened, you know, do you want me to drop this, you know, fellow? three times and I'm watching this going, oh, surely they're just going to plaster cuff him, put a bag over his head and drag him away or put him on the chopper. And then he, he put three bullets into him. And it's one of those moments I think you might have one or two in your journalistic career where you go, I don't need to rewind that. I don't know whether I saw that. <laughs> that, that was incredible. And I remember looking around the office to see if anyone had seen it. And thankfully it was a Friday, as I said, Friday night, not many people there. And I remember ringing my editor, Joe Puccini, and saying, I think... I think we might have a war crime here. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, the power of that picture, um, I'll tell you a little story. The head of the SAS was asked the week before the program went to air whether he was going to watch the, the Four Corners because the promo was out. We didn't put Braden in the promo. We didn't put um, any of the footage in the promo. We didn't want any drama. So it was a pretty, it was 
me asking myself questions I couldn't answer promo. Um, so the promo goes out. He's head of the SAS in Perth. So are you going to you know, watch this? And he went, no, nothing new in that. <laughs> and, of course, his phone lights up, you know, before the teaser's even over. Yeah. The program, I think you better turn the TV over, mate, you know? And it was holy, you know? And that, that was the arrogance, mm. the utter arrogance of it all. About, and their contempt for the media, too, in a lot of ways. Yeah, and they still have that. In fact, they were complaining more that, you know, we got the vision or you got the vision rather than, you know, mm. the story was, was told. But I thought there was a lot of really fascinating contextual stuff there, you, the commentary from the sidelines. Mm. Like, the, the very fact that there were sidelines, that there were soldiers standing back and, and not doing anything about this, mm. but hearing them also lament things like, well, I guess we don't care about winning the war, you know. So yeah. they, they got it. They, you know, yeah. By the way, war crimes are just not a moral outrage. They strategically were disastrous too. We were actually supposed to be helping the Afghans, not killing them. Yeah, yeah that, I remember what, I, you know, I was in the Middle East for four years and so... I did a couple of embeds and, you know, and watched soldiers. It's sort of fascinating. I, I, I knew that when it's quiet, they're not doing it, they're patrolling or they're just standing around, that's when they talk. That's when they bitch, they moan. So that was why I was really um, determined to go through all this footage frame by frame. And I remember that conversation, they're just standing around by a mud wall and I remember the highlight of the conversation at one point was the guy sucking back through his nose and spitting, you know, repeatedly. It was a delightful sound. And um, then they started talking about this colleague and, you know, he bashes people, he shot a, shot a kid and blah, blah, blah. And they complain about he just murdered a prisoner. Mm. And then, yeah, and then there's that line, which I think is probably the best line in the whole story, and I didn't write it. And he just said to his mate, I just don't think we're, trying to win, we're, not, we're not trying to win the war anymore. Mm-hmm. So they got it. Mm. But did they say anything about it? No. And... Um, for people who don't know, I'm sure you do, but most of this vision wasn't shot by us. It was their vision. It was helmet yeah. cam vision. Normally, Special Forces soldiers are really careful about having footage, and I know from a lot of the work that Nick and I have done, there isn't any footage, like two squadron didn't do it. I remember the one squadron commander telling me, kind of candidly, that it only gets you into trouble. <laughs> Uh, and as in, in which case yeah. this really did. Were they, were they cowboys? Why, why were they? Because there were hours and hours of that vision. Yeah, they were actually told by their troop sergeant, do not wear helmet cameras. Mm. And they, what they do is they'd strap them on once they're in the Black Hawk. And they'd normally only switch them off when they were dealing with the prisoners. And um, the funny thing about that, this whole footage was taken by them for their personal you know, highlights reel. And in fact, they edited up little highlights videos. We showed them in the four corners with, mm. with, you know, sometimes heavy metal music and graphics. And I'm really proud of it. But they didn't, they didn't put the, kill, the, the, the unlawful killing in. But, and the cache of footage I got was a com- combination of several different helmet cameras. So they pulled it into a file that they all could access. And of course, someone accessed it and gave it to me. Um, so they were sort of proud of it. And um, it's ironic that one of the Brereton recommendations now is that they should all have helmet cameras <laughs> and they should be switched on at all times. Mm. It happened with policing years ago too, didn't it? With uh, mm. I- interviewing. Uh, yeah. Because of all of the verbaling. And I think journalism had a bit to do with that as well. Um, 
shows the value of the fourth estate, this story, yeah. because here were soldiers who were enormously troubled by what they saw some of their colleagues doing. They, they knew they'd be in massive trouble if they uh, made an issue out of it. Uh, a bunch of them tried, you know, they tried to elevate it. They got nowhere. So where do they turn? They, they turn to journalists. Do you think this is a good example of why journalism is important? Yeah, I think, I think it is. It's one of them. I think, you know, what we're seeing in Canberra at the moment with uh, those allegations is another. Some great work being done on, on accountability there, because there has been, obviously, very little accountability. Um, uh, you know, royal commissions, uh, the aged care thing. You know, we, we have become a systems failure sort of unit or, or institution, and it's a sad thing in a way. Um, but it shows that um, I think our journalism is more important than ever. And um, I think some, you know, with the winners tonight, there's been some amazing stuff. Good on you, Mark. Congratulations. Thanks, Chris. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, everyone.